Welcome to the Lee Schools TV podcast. I'm Adam Wright. Joining us today is Jeremy Riggio, Global Perspectives teacher at North Fort Myers High School. Jeremy, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Happy New Year, by the way. Uh, yes, I know. You're, Brand the, new. you're our first guest in the new year, 2020. All right. Uh, you have been teaching for 17 years now, is that right? That's correct. Uh, all 17 here in Lee County? or No, my first five years I taught, uh, I'm originally from Syracuse, New York, okay. so I taught five years in a small town called Canastota, and then got really tired of winter and snow, which lasts about eight months up there, and decided to make a move. Had some friends that live down here. They cued me into teach near the beach, came down, attended, had a number of job opportunities, and, and landed at North Fort Myers High School, and that's where I've been ever since. So I first met you... Um a couple months ago when I was at North Fort Myers to film the, the uh, video I did on the civics programs that mm -hmm. we offer at uh, our various schools here. And um, I was really interested in your class. So you teach global perspectives, uh, which is a class that I never took in high school. It's part of the Cambridge ACE program at North. That's correct. Yep. Uh, so what can you tell me? What is global perspectives? What do you teach your students? So global perspectives is focused on modern current issues, things like climate change, artificial intelligence, everything from terrorism to we do, you know, migration. And then we look at it from a current, you know, a current stance, but we also then break down all the different perspectives that exist on that issue. And so what you see in high school students is that typically their viewpoints are influenced by those who are around, those adults that are around them most often. And what we do is we take time to look at all the different viewpoints, right? So what are the benefits of artificial intelligence, okay, economically, politically, culturally, but also what are the downfalls? What are the potential issues that are going to arise? You know, is it going to cause mass unemployment, things like that? And global perspectives allows students to voice their own opinions. So it's really skills-based. They have to be able to communicate. They have to be able to back up what they're communicating. Um, they have to be effective researchers. And then ultimately, they have to be able to write and or present to get those thoughts out. Um, when you came in for the civics thing, we did Socratic seminar. And that was just, essentially, I give them a question, a guiding question, but I allow them to go wherever they want to go. Um, I think about it as like an intelligent dinner conversation. And then the rest of the students in the class are observing that, and we can interact after, you know, 10 minutes or so as a bigger group. So, yeah, so Socratic seminar, that's when you... Um you know, if you check out our civics video, you'll see it, uh, but we can, you know, we can show the video right now for people who are watching on, you know, Facebook or YouTube, but the students, you give them like a topic to explore, mm -hmm. but um, they get to come up with the question that they want to discuss in, sure. and they break up into small groups and sit in a circle yep. and just talk to each other about the question at hand. Mm -hmm. And I think the question the day I was there was um, uh, something about globalization, um, what if the far-reaching effects of globalization, something sure. like that. I can't remember the specific one, but mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I remember one of the, the things that jumped out to me when I was interviewing you for the story was you were, you were saying that, you know, you want to teach your students how to think, not what to think. Right. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. um, so can you expound on that a little bit? Like, why is that important to you? Yeah, so for me, in a situation like the Socratic Seminar, I want it to be really organic. I don't want to put up these restrictions on where the conversation could go. If, as I just want to provide a question, and I want them to fill in everything that's interesting to them. Um, the, really, the key point here is you can't know everything in my class. It's, it's impossible. So let's see where the conversation flows, because if they can do that with 
five, 10, 15 of their classmates in that situation, they're gonna be able to do that when they go for job interviews, when they start off at college and university. That's a skill that's gonna translate. And ultimately, for me in my class, the most important thing, the test that we give is, it, we have a lot of success on our exam, sure, that's fine. But I ultimately want my students to have skills that are gonna translate across their schedule that aren't going to be limited to the one period of a day that they happen to be sitting with me. And so if they're effective communicators in that situation, especially the Socratic seminar, I think they're effective communicators across the board. Do you find that they um, really enjoy the conversation? Um, I know it's probably harder to get some students to uh, you know, say a lot when they get in those circles and talk about a topic. Um, I'm sure other students are really engaged and, and, and really enjoy it. Uh, does it depend on the topic, I guess, or I know the day I was there, um, they seemed a little quiet. Might have been because I was sticking a camera in their face sure. or maybe a little shyer than yeah. they would normally be. But um, yeah, I mean, what is the engagement levels like that you get from the students in those? That balance, it, it really varies. So you're going to have kids, like you're saying, who are more than willing to participate. And then you're going to have others who probably have really good ideas and they're just, for whatever reason at the moment, don't have that confidence to just get involved. And for some reason, we've been trained, you know, raise our hand, we'll participate, now it's my turn. I, in the Socratic seminar, I actually try to encourage that not to be the case. I want them to get involved as soon as they have an idea. And there's always some little awkward moments here or there where, you know, two kids try to talk at the same time. And it tends to work itself out without me having to interfere. And that's mm -hmm. kind of the goal there. Um, but then we do these sessions after the Socratic seminar. I think you were there for this too, the debrief session, mm -hmm. where the whole time they're talking, I'm writing down interesting things that's coming out of the conversation. And that way I can do follow-up questions where then I get a little bit more involved. I can drive a little bit more and start picking on you know, hands here and there, which will give those people who are maybe hesitant in the big group the opportunity to then jump in and, and get some points in there. We, are there certain, kind of like what I said, it probably depends maybe on the topic that they're discussing too, whether how, mm -hmm. um, you know, how engaged they are in it. Do you find that, are there certain topics of discussion that students find more interesting than others? Yeah, and the way we do it is there's always six questions in a Socratic seminar. We have six themes in global perspectives, politics, economics, environment, ethics, culture, science, and technology. Okay. And um, there's one question from every theme. The students are always grouped in two or three and then they work together within that group of two or three to, to break up the questions so each of them is in the inner circle once talking. And so they work together to break up the questions that they're interested in, mm -hmm. right? And so they kind of take care of that ahead of time. And what was the, can you give us an example of, um, like I kind of botched earlier, I couldn't remember the globalization question, but can you remember a specific question that the students recently sat down and talked about? I think the globalization question that you were in for was based on, is it, does it make for a level playing field or is it something along the lines of is it good does it increase or decrease you know the socioeconomic differences okay. between populations yeah um, i think it was something along that mm -hmm. lines um, and we had just finished doing the globalization unit one of the interesting ones we've done recently um, was about social media <clears throat> and social networking but somehow we got down to this root question of uh, do words hurt right uh, are words violent um, and then really exploring with students the difference between action and words and hate mm. speech and to hear their take on it because really they're in the middle of it, right? Cyberbullying, yeah. you know, I, I tell the students all the time, cyberbullying, when I was in high school, you always had the threat of you're going to have to get on a bus with this person at mm. some point, right? And what are they going to do? Um, 
with cyberbullying, that's not the case. So to, so to kind of watch the conversation trickle there and hear the nuances and then hear their personal experiences and their personal reflections on it, that was really kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, at least, you know, back in the day, if you were bullied at school, at least you could go home at the end of the day and mm -hmm. you'd get a little reprieve from it. You know, yeah. at the end of the day, it was over with. And then, you know, you had when, when you went back to school, but yeah. you'd have to maybe face it again. But today, like cyberbullying, it's 24-7. Like you can't really get away from it when you get home because sure. it's, yeah. you know, you might get bullied at school and then cyberbullying, you get bullied at home. Absolutely. And that's one of the best things about Socratic seminars for me is it allows me to ask these, and sometimes I'll do it on purpose. We're going to ask these big questions that are so far out of the norm. Students tend to get into this thing where it's because it's always been done this way, that's just the way it's always going to be done. So we were doing a question on migrations and I posed in the debrief, I just posed the question, what if we just got rid of borders? What if there were no borders? What if you could just go wherever you wanted to go? You didn't have to have these checks and controls. And to watch in real time them work through the risks potential positives of that is it's it's really fun it's made this class um, really enjoyable for me you ever find yourself surprised by their level of insight or intellect on certain topics or just some of the ideas or maybe maybe they surprise you and you realize maybe that or that's something that I didn't think of before and your students op open even your own eyes to oh something. yeah it's yeah. it's 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 really incredible <laughs> um, one they attack it from a place where, sure, they may have some kind of light bias or they may be influenced in their parents in some way, but eventually they just are, you just watch them, like I said, talk through the issue and it, it, they come to some places where it's like, you need to write a paper about this or you need to do your presentation on this. These are things that you're really passionate about. And, and some of the issues that I see students in our area most passionate about are influenced by media, right? So it's like, um, our waterways, water mm -hmm. pollution, um, taking care of that. And so that's one big issue that I see come up with our groups year in and year out in the last few years. Um, human trafficking is a big one. But to hear their standpoint and then to see them try to pose solutions to that, mm -hmm. uh, it's really nice when they break away from the idea that these things will be impossible to do. Uh, and it, that can be really kind of motivating for me as a teacher. So this, the Socratic seminars, is that something that is part of the like mandated curriculum for a global perspectives mm -hmm. class or is that something kind of unique that to your classroom that you chose choose to do you know um, so before I was the ace global perspectives teacher and ace coordinator I taught a class called general paper um, I had done I'd been at north for a while I'd been doing just kind of English on level and, and both freshmen and sophomores and then finally they allowed me to do some honors classes then eventually we became an ace school and I started with ace general paper and the Socratic seminars were just something I found um, online. Mm -hmm. And I kind of tweaked it to fit what I wanted to do in my class. And we would use it to talk about the different books that we were reading. And it was a way for it not to get away from me being the centerpiece. I didn't want to be the centerpiece. I felt like they had so much more to offer. Yeah, because like, you just kind of sit off to the side yeah. and let them yeah. talk. And you, mm -hmm. know, you interject here and there. But for yeah. the most part, you just leave it to them to yeah. discuss. And, and they do a good job. And I'm always there as a safety net, right? Mm -hmm. And I like to tell them, like, the safety net is right above the ground, right? But I'm there for you, and I'll redirect. Or if I feel like somebody's either repetitive or if they're maybe, we kind of call it controlling the discussion, um, I'll jump in and just kind of pass it over to somebody else. Mm -hmm. But that happens so rarely now. They just kind of get used to it. Uh, but it's not required or anything. It's just a really good way, in my opinion, of 
if the point of the class is to take a global issue and think about all the different perspectives, there's no better way than to let these students vocalize their own perspectives. Mm. The real test is figuring out why they, why their perspective is what it is, right? Mm. Why do they see this issue in the way they do? What's influenced them? Is it all their parents? Is it the media? Is it what they actually believe is right? And here's the evidence to back that up. That's what gets really interesting. And it's important for them to, you know, not only articulate their beliefs and get comfortable talking about um, their beliefs, but also hearing different perspectives from mm -hmm. people from different backgrounds. Sure. And like when I was interviewing you for the for the video, you you talked about you mentioned how how polarized you know the United States is today, mm -hmm. especially yeah. politically, um, and you know, if you can get a group of students from different backgrounds to just sit and talk to each other and learn something you said that, you know, somebody might have a different viewpoint than you that may, or you don't agree with, yeah. and that's okay. Mm -hmm. uh, as long as they can understand, if you're able to articulate your viewpoint in yeah. a way that helps somebody sure. else understand where you're coming from, that can go a long way. And It's so important where we're mm -hmm. are, we are right now. And the reality is <clears throat> it's it feels polarized, but when you have the conversations where... You sit down and say, you know, I think I think we need more gun control versus no, you know, we should not have more gun control. When you start to then explore why you think that way, you realize that each view has a little bit in common, right? And it's okay for us not to agree. That doesn't mean we won't agree on a whole bunch of other issues and that we can't walk out of there and say, oh, man, that was a really good conversation. And that's where I think we need to get to. And I think it starts, it's not going to start with, you know, older people who are, you know, really just they're entrenched in their positions. It's gonna start by letting kids know, hey, you're entitled to whatever viewpoint you wanna have. Can you back it up? Mm -hmm. And are you willing to be open-minded and listen to the opposition? Because that's the really real key, and, and that's what I think is missing. Mm -hmm. And an another thing I like about just seeing students, especially high school students, just sitting around, looking at each other in the eye and, and talking to each other about you know important topics mm -hmm. is, you know, just seeing them talk to each other instead of, you know, looking down at their phones, which, yeah. you know, of course is, you know, they're just ubiquitous these days, just sure. everywhere, everywhere, everywhere you look. Every time I go to a campus, uh, you know, not during instruction time, but, yeah. you know, in the halls, in between mm -hmm. classes, yeah. you know, so many students got their headphones in, looking down at their phones. And you see that in faculty meetings, <laughs> right? I mean, you probably see it in meetings. Yeah, I mean, I'm guilty of it too, of yeah. course. Mm -hmm. So, but, yeah. you know, it, it, how important is it to just get them away from those devices and you know just actually talk face to face with somebody for several minutes i think it's incredibly important and it and it's challenging right because they're so used to having that to trope back to at some point even if they do a couple minutes you know they can go to their phone and and find that information and i don't have a problem with you know finding something on your phone you know getting a little anecdote here or there what i have a problem with is when you give the anecdote but you don't have a follow up right like oh this is what google tells me <laughs> Okay, but what does that mean for you? What does that mean for your viewpoint? What does that mean for the argument that you're trying to make? Does that really support it? Does that open it up to more criticism? Like, where's the middle ground there? Um, so, to, obviously watching kids interact, and we do a lot of collaborative activities in my room because a component of our exam requires collaboration, but um, to watch kids interact with each other and to talk about these huge issues, right? We're, nobody's gonna, climate change is a massive issue. Uh, terrorism is a big issue. Migrations are a big issue. To hear them talk about it, talk about it intelligently, and to also enjoy talking about it, I think is is obviously pretty rewarding. So, kind of 
piggybacking on the technology topic, mm-hmm. um, kind of segue into what you're teaching them right now, what they're learning about in class. You say you're working on like a digital futures unit, so to speak, yeah. right now. Yep. Where you're, you said you're talking about the internet, artificial intelligence, social networks, robotics. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, what what is it about those that they're they're learning about? So uh, our first unit back is digital futures, the internet social networks and AI is the title. And so we started with just talking about internet access around the world, the different places where internet companies perhaps are looking to expand. And first we kind of weighed, after looking at the percentage of internet access, the cost of internet access around the world, we had them think about the idea of uh, Mark Zuckerberg. This isn't overly recent, but he led a coalition of companies to expand internet access into Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and then uh, some countries in Asia. And we kind of weighed the idea of there's a humanitarian effort, there's a philosophy, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the word, but in any case, a, philanth- a philanthropic idea mm-hmm. there to his his um, movement. Yeah. But at the same time, there's a really good chance that he's going to profit from that. And so I had the kids kind of weigh if it matters. And it's interesting to hear some argue that, yeah, we have to question, you know, is this really an, an issue of ethics and morality, or is this just economics for him? Is he just trying to put some more money in his pocket. Um, and that gets to be an interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. And then from there we went to just the idea of internet access period. And the uh, question I posed to them was, is it a human right? We had just recently done, before break, we had asked, you know, is access to clean water a human right? Should it be? Um, and so we did that with internet. Is internet access a human right? Should it be? Um, and initially everybody was, no, Mm-mm, that's mm-hmm. not the case. And then we started to think about the disadvantages that those that don't have internet are faced with, and I brought some into the middle, and it's kind of always my idea is to move them to the middle, uh, which is the fun part about teaching the class, is that I can jump back and forth. So You kind of play really both sides. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, What's well, interesting, the inter- so you said originally most of them were, no, internet's not a human right. Mm-mm. Yeah, yeah. But Very some, of them, some of them maybe moved a little bit. And yeah, and they were looking at, they were looking at it purely from the standpoint of, if you can't afford it, you can't afford it. Like, that's, too bad for you. And so the interesting part there is we start to look at our own, our own biases. Can we really understand what improvements could be made in sub-Saharan Africa from our kind of American, you know, comfort lifestyle where we all have Chromebooks in our classroom? Mm-hmm. The majority of them, I think all in my class of 40, all but two of them had a smartphone with them. Right, and so you know, once we started to kind of poke holes in some of that, they 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 worked their way. I wouldn't say they made it to the middle or they made it to the other side, but they at least were starting to see they can't find the same jobs. They probably don't have access to the same quality of education. They probably don't have access to the same reading material. Um, you know, even even just looking up, hey, is this thing healthy for me to eat? They don't. Mm. They're missing some of that stuff that these other massive populations have. And so are they kind of stuck in a cycle mm. because they don't have internet access? Well, and kind of not really on the same question, but it's interesting and kind of scary to think about, you know, what would happen if the internet just went down one day? Mm-hmm. Like what, what would happen to society at large, especially here in the United States? Like what if the internet just stopped working? Yeah. And we talked about that. We talked about this internet of things yeah. where everything's communicating. Well, what happens when those things stop communicating? Because the reality is technology has made our lives so much easier that 
well, there's a, definitely a portion of the people who know how to do all their stuff that you need to do with autos and uh, automobiles and mechanics, yeah. right? Not everybody does. And so if the car's not telling you, maybe you don't know, just down to those simple things. Or traffic lights being all tuned into each other. Banking. Banking, yeah, ATM, right? Yeah, all that stuff. So um, I think the students initially kind of underestimated how much artificial intelligence and technology is in their lives. But it wasn't so much that they underestimated it. It's just so integrated that they don't even think about it. It's just there always yeah i wanted to ask you um do you think they have a sense of what the internet has done to them in a in a, in a sense or um because i i mean i i grew up i was born in 89 so <clears throat> the internet i was i was a young child when the internet kind of boom happened yeah and so i i, I remember i still remember a world before the internet but the students today they don't remember a world where there was no internet. Yeah. How, how do you think the internet has changed teaching and students? You know, today? it's funny because we talked about Google Classroom. Yeah. Uh, one of the things somebody brought up was, you know, how different our classes would be with Google Classroom. And then it led to a little bit of a discussion of better, worse, neutral. But in any case, it's it, they felt like initially it went from, with a lot of teaching initiatives that I've seen in my career, it's, at first they pose it and it's like, oh, this is going to be awful, this is way too much change, we're not going to be able to do this. And I kind of felt that way at first with Google Classroom, and then all of a sudden everybody was on board, and now probably it's so fully integrated into their room, mm -hmm. they can't live without it. And I think that's kind of what the students were getting at. Um, a few of them said, you know, we wish that not all of our assignments were through Google Classroom in some cases. And obviously that varies across the schedule, yeah. and it's not to knock any teacher who's using it. But it, it's just kind of funny that that stood out to them as something to mention was this idea that, uh, it's so so much such an important part of our classroom, and 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 it is an important part of mine, right? All my presentations are on the smart board. All of them are via Prezi. Mm -hmm. I use Google Classroom for at least one major assignment a quarter, um, so, and I post our weekly quotation goes on there. All of our resources that I provide to them goes on there. So, yeah, it integrates its way in, and it almost does it. You know, it's just subconscious. It subtly just slips in there, and then the next thing you know, you're using it all the time. Uh, speaking about artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. um, I don't know what specific discussions you've had, if any, yet so far with the students about it. Um, but is it? Well, have you gotten to that yet? Have you had? Have they discussed artificial intelligence or where it's? We'll going? start really getting into it next week. Um, they're going to talk about the idea of robotics and artificial intelligence, and they're actually going to put together ten-minute lessons on different themes. They don't know that yet, but um, <laughs> they're going to put together ten-minute lessons Surprise. on different things. Yeah, exactly. Here it comes. And uh, so we'll see where they want to go with it. Uh, I have had a few papers from students for their final that, that have been written on automation and artificial intelligence. So they are kind of approaching it from um, the viewpoint that it's going to hurt employment, like it's going to change the way we employ. We've dabbled in the idea of universal basic income. Um, and is that a real response? And that gets some pretty interesting, you know, uh, reactions from students because they see it as this thing where it's like, oh, you're just going to give people money because we have robots? And, you know, everything we talk about always kind of comes back to <coughs> economics versus something, right? Mm -hmm. It's economics versus culture. Or it's economics versus ethics. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those are interesting discussions to have with 16, 17, and 18-year-olds. Yeah, so you talked about this stuff with your students last year in the class? We didn't do digital futures. No, this you is, didn't. This okay. is a new unit, actually. Because I'm curious to see if artificial intelligence is something that, that worries or scares students. So that's, I did ask them the question, is technology something 
that you feel is, are you concerned about it? We did a timeline just kind of looking at when the first computer and then the internet and all these different things and whenever, what percentage of the population had smartphones over what time. And I said, is this something that concerns you? Is this something that worries you? And across the board, there wasn't one person that raised their hand and said they were concerned. So I had to kind of pull out of it. And then it was, you know, well, maybe we're not as prepared to interact face to face as we used to be. Maybe we're not as prepared to deal with the unexpected as we used to be because we can just always find a solution on our phone or on our computer. <clears throat> so that was a that was a little bit of an issue, but uh, we haven't so gotten none of them. Were, none of them were worried about. None it? of them were worried. Mm. I guess maybe they haven't thought about all the different possibilities. And my two classes are very different, so yeah. the fact that they were on the same page about that was kind of funny. Mm, yeah, because yeah. I always, you know, think about it sometimes, and it's like if you create something, this even if it becomes self-aware, self-conscious, mm -hmm. um, you know, you can you can program a artificially intelligent robot or whatever to sure. perform a task. Yeah, and then there's always the risk of. Well, you might ask it to do something, and it will do that task, but it might do it in a way that isn't doesn't line up with our morals or ethics. Mm -hmm. um, I think Elon Musk used it an example one time, talking about like you know, what if you create some kind of program that all it its only purpose is to eliminate spam, spam emails or whatever, but you don't tell it how you want it to do that. Well, it might just be like, well, the easiest way to eliminate spam is to just eliminate all the humans. Then you won't have spam anymore. Right, <laughs> so. right. Or it might just start taking out emails out of your inbox. Like, yeah. you know, this person really doesn't need that. It's not that mm -hmm. important. They decide, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, that's an interesting, that's an interesting concept is when artificial intelligence, because we often refer back to, you know, like technological holocaust and this could be it, yeah, you know, Terminator. Terminator. <laughs> yeah, everybody wants to talk about Terminator. And, and that'll probably happen next week because we're showing a couple of the videos just to show them how far robotics has advanced, we'll do a couple Boston Dynamic videos. We'll talk about those things. Scare me. Yeah, they're climbing walls. They're jumping yeah. things. They're running faster than humans are going to run. It looks fake. Some of the videos they put out, it, it's I see it and I'm like, that's not real. Yeah, exactly. We're not there yet. But well, the old joke used to be if the zombie apocalypse happens, I don't actually have to be that fast. I have to be faster than the people that are immediate with me immediately. Yeah, yeah. When the technological holocaust happens or that starts to go downhill, it doesn't matter how fast Knock you are. Knock on wood. Yeah. yeah. Are you, have you, you ever watched the show Black Mirror? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because mm -hmm. there, there's, there's an episode, I think the one called... Black Dog. Yeah, Metalhead, I think Metal it's called. Metalhead, Metalhead. Yeah, the yeah. one that's in black and white. Yep. Mm -hmm. That episode reminds me of the Boston Dynamics robots, like yeah. what they could potentially end up being one day if you know, and, and everything goes horribly start, wrong. Didn't that start, spoiler alert, but didn't that start, they moved a box on like the third yeah. third level of a warehouse. And all of a sudden there there's was, this robot dog that's just down one really, yeah, yeah. really quick spiral. Scary to think about. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, is there anything, anything else that you're uh, talking to your students about that you're really excited about or something you did last semester? I'd say the most common issue that students bring up papers, presentations, is climate change, really. Um, and I don't know why that is. It could be that it's just everywhere. We see it on our social media networks. We see it in our news. And I thought it would be, I was actually talking to Adam Malloy about this. I thought it would be interesting to do a unit where I taught the same exact topic every other, like, for two days. But it, from each day, I did it in a different perspective. So from one point, you'd, you'd teach the same exact topic, but you'd be from the point where, oh, you know, climate change is natural variation, you know, it's, uh, man has very little to do with it, where then the next day you turn around and teach the same, the next time they come into class, you teach the same topic from a point where it's like, oh no, this is all, you know, humans. Mm -hmm. It'd be, I thought it would be interesting to see the students' reactions to that. I haven't gotten around to really planning it out, and it's gonna take some effort, but um, 
it fits into what the idea of the class is, right? I can make this argument what I need it to be. Am I open to that? Am I open to those things to challenge the way I see climate change? Do you get a mixed um, bag of opinions on climate change from your students or? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a mixed bag on every global yeah. issue. Um, and some kids are better at kind of explaining why it is they think that way and really understanding why it is they think that way than others. But that's the whole point of the year of study, that at the, by the end of the year, everybody can do that. Everybody can participate in these discussions. Yeah. Just to maybe wrap up uh, before we move on to uh, the final five questions, <clears throat> why do you feel it's so important? You know, global perspectives, the class you teach, it's a lot different than the core mm -hmm. subjects that, you know, we might think of in the classroom. Um, why do you think it's so important for students to take a class like yours? I think it's important because now more than ever, there's supposed to be all these people who are experts, right? They all have information to give you. And if you're only taking that information at face value without doing any of the legwork of researching its accuracy, really reflecting on how it impacts you, then you're never really going to have a big picture of what your feelings are, are on a viewpoint. You're just basically copying others. And so with all the information that comes through social media, with all the information that comes through the media, all of that stuff, I want my students to be able to kind of sift through it and figure out where their opinions are. What, what's their viewpoint? Why do they think that way? Can you go tell somebody else, an adult, anybody else, why it is you think that way? Um, instead of just taking everything at face value, or instead of you know, just saying, oh, I hate that idea, or that idea is terrible, right? Um, the reality is the world we live in now doesn't really reward reflection. It rewards the 15-second angry response mm -hmm. or super joyful, whatever it might be, super joyful response, but it doesn't award taking the time to go down and do the research to really reflect on why you think that way and then to put something intelligent out. It just wants, everything is lightning speed. Yeah, news news outlets seem to they seem to like to attract people on the polar opposite sides of an issue, and yeah, when, when in reality, most people are probably somewhere in the middle. Sure. Uh, okay, Jeremy Riggio, what is your favorite book? Favorite book: One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So I've never read it, but I recently saw the movie for the first mm -hmm. time. Very different. Are they? Yeah. The movie is good in its own right. Um, I think the book is great. Uh, to do the movie great, in my opinion, it's going to require a mix of movie and animation if you're really going to mm. get into it. Um, the other thing I would suggest is if you're going to read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for the first time, read a couple chapters out of um, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, kind of is where the book eventually stemmed from. Um, but One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a really good look at man versus machine. Mm. Um, interesting, like, gender role things to look at there, too, that are kind of reversed in the book for some time. Mm. Um, and then, of course, all the different things that come from the electric Kool-Aid acid test and different tests that they used to do psychologically and using drugs and stuff, LSD and all that stuff on patients mm. back in the day that obviously don't, well, aren't around anymore. Who's the author of that again? Ken Kesey. Ken Kesey, okay. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, full disclosure, you actually sent me your answers to these questions ahead of time, mm -hmm. and you you gave me a, your favorite fiction book and your favorite nonfiction yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. I'm originally an English teacher, so oh, okay. yeah, so that's where I, that's where I was first. That's what I did for about eleven years before I became the coordinator. I did one year as a full-time coordinator and wanted to get back in the classroom and saw global perspectives as a really interesting way to do that, and it's kind of reinvigorated what I do. And do you? Uh, so you said your favorite nonfiction book is 
uh, The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt. It's a more yeah. recent one. Yeah, and that I've, could be a little bit of recency bias, but it's really good. Yeah, I've read it. Um, and um, kind of the main focus of the book is they talk about, um, well, I actually have some notes here for it that I got because I I really like the book too. And it, so the subtitle is How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, mm-hmm. which sounds kind of almost like they're um, being a little harsh on the, the Gen Z. Um, yeah. That's, I mean, it's about some of the things that they're noticing with the Gen Z right. uh, or the I generation. At all levels. Which is, which is what our current students uh, college age students mm-hmm. as well, yeah. and they talk about kind of the th- the three great untruths in their opinion of um, that seem to be becoming more popular in today's society. And it's the three great untruths that they say are: what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Mm-hmm. Always trust your feelings, and life is a battle between good people and evil people. And there, the book is kind of a thesis on you know maybe that's we should rethink yeah. the way we're kind of looking at the world. I think that third one really speaks to the class that I teach, right? Life is a battle between good people and evil people, and it's hoping that people can realize that that's really not the case. Mm-hmm. It's you know? not so as black and white as that. Yeah, you don't agree with me. That doesn't make you the evil person mm-hmm. in that story. And if it does, then I have to consider that in that other person's viewpoint, I'm the evil person. And that can be tricky to put that aside, right? To, mm-hmm. to go, oh, wait, if A is true, then so is B. Yeah. So that's tough. And another thing I like from that book is it. Um, they talk about how it's important to prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. It's one of the best quotations. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, to me, it, it, the other thing that, that kind of comes from that is this idea of honest and mean. I think we we kind of talked about it beforehand, but. It seems like when you're honest with somebody and you tell them, hey, these are the things you're good at and these are the things you need to work on, apparently you were only supposed to tell them the things they were good at and not the things that they could develop, not the things that could improve. Um, and so honest and mean are so often just integrated. Mm-hmm. And I don't, that's not fair. And I think Jonathan Haidt gets at that a little bit, right? Like these students aren't necessarily, these kids aren't sensitive just because they are. It's because we've done something that's enabled that sensitivity to come about. Yeah, and the, and the book goes into, it talks about how the rise of cable news in the 80s, mm-hmm. um, you know, CNN is born, and for the first time, parents are seeing, and you know, crime is prevalent on the news, especially violent crime, so for the first time, parents are seeing all these horrible news stories from all over the country about kidnappings and murders, yeah. and they think that oh my gosh, this world is such a dangerous place, I need to protect my child at all costs, when in reality, you know, crime rates have been steadily decreasing over the years and kind of... Yeah, the idea that they can't play outside anymore. Yeah. Right, and then, and that's kind of sad. Or they can't just go down around the corner to the playground, they always have to be within eyesight. Mm-hmm. And as a, a parent of a, a 20-month-old and a 4-year-old, well, it, takes a, it takes a bit mm-hmm. to allow that release, but it's always, it's good for them to have it. Giving your children a little more independence might pay off. Yeah, for sure. Okay, what's your favorite movie or TV show? Favorite movie is Inception. Um, and it's funny that you said that because it's like year end, you start ranking things. And I, I just recently was doing this, all right, what are my top five? And Inception has always, since, it, since I first saw it, kind of steadily remained at number one. The few that might filter in behind them, they, they shift and, and jumble around a little bit. But Inception is always my favorite. For some reason, I enjoy movies that don't have a very clear ending. Okay. Yeah, yeah it's pretty up to interpretation the end yeah, with the spinning. Ambiguous. Um, Lots of cool stuff going on. Yeah. All kinds of fan theories of this means this and he's wearing the ring and he's not wearing the ring. Mm. 
It's a lot of cool stuff, and I enjoy that. I love Christopher Nolan. Have you seen the trailer for his new one, yeah. Tenet? It looks un unbelievable. It looks kind of Inception. Yes, yeah. with yeah. maybe time instead of dreams. Yeah, yeah. So that's gonna be neat. He's the best. I think he's good too at finding kind of. Uh, sure, Leonardo DiCaprio was in Inception, but he's yeah. good at finding these other actors who are a little bit lesser well known. Mm -hmm. Denzel Washington's son is the mm -hmm. star in that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Um, have you seen Memento? I have seen Memento. I think that's my favorite of his. I really like The Prestige too. What's your favorite movie of all time? Oh God, my favorite movie of all time. I don't know. Yeah. I I have so many. I, my go-to is The Matrix, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, good. But I don't know. I'm a big fan of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, too. What's funny is that I go from Inception to Hell or High Water. Yeah, like, that's a good one. I've seen that yeah, one, too. It's a good movie, but they're very yeah. not they're not very similar. And you told me that your favorite TV show is Mad Men. There's so much good TV. And when you asked me my favorite, I was like, oh, God, what's my favorite? And then when I really had to stop and think, what do I think was groundbreaking or changed? Some people would argue The Sopranos, obviously, mm -hmm. but I think Mad I've Men. I've never seen it. I think Mad Men yeah. changed the way I, Mad Men was the first TV show where I ever watched and I was an English major in college I taught English it's the first TV show I ever watched where I was like you could put together a whole I'm sure they do you can put together entire classes this is like a work of art mm -hmm. uh, you can put together everything on this on this one show yeah I recently rewatched it um, I, so I, I think I binged the first few seasons on Netflix when I was in college, and then I watched the final couple seasons as they played out in real time on AMC. But I recently re-watched the whole series with my wife, who had never seen it, on Netflix. And it was even better than I remember. Yeah. Just, I think the second viewing, I liked it even more. Yeah. <clears throat> and I was recently, somebody asked me recently like what my favorite TV show is. And I think I have to kind of separate them into categories yeah. almost. I think my favorite, <laughs> like my favorite comedy is The Office. My favorite drama is Mad Men. Yeah. And like fantasy, I like you know, I'm a big Game of Thrones fan too. Yeah, but, I like Game. Of but Thrones. Mad Men is such a, it's such a in-depth character study of Don Draper and just delving into mm -hmm. uh, what makes somebody the person that they are and to make him likable. I know, because he's such a bad person. Yeah. When you think about some of the things he does, you know, all the infidelity and all that. But I think about the pilot, and you watch him throughout the whole pilot, and then in the last, I think it's three minutes of the show, he pulls up to this house and walks in, and there's kids and wife, yeah. and you're like, what the heck is going on yeah. here? I mean, just the pilot is is a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, like you said, you, you end up liking him throughout the series. I mean, mm -hmm. He still does some pretty bad things but yeah, then you also sure. you see you, you get insights of him trying to be a really good person and yeah. a lot of things that he does too and then their devotion to you know being accurate right with oh history yeah is it, it's unmatched and i i appreciate anybody that goes to those types of lengths to do something so well do you think they can make that show today i think they could yeah i, I won't where when was it when was the i think years? it first came out in 07 and ran until like 15 it'd be close yeah it'd be tough Mm. But I think I think maybe that show the acting was so good the writing was so good I think that it could probably be done. It treats all of its side characters w incredibly well too. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and there's growth. Everybody's a dynamic character. Mm -hmm. There's no there's no real static characters in the show that last. Yeah. They all show some sort of there's some sort of arc for everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, what's your favorite song or musical artist? Um, I, I don't really have a favorite song or musical artist, and what I've noticed more so now than ever with my four-year-old is I just have this kind of playlist for her, and I hit shuffle when we get in the car, and she's happy as can be, and right now, both my four-year-old and Quinn, my younger daughter, Sloan is my older daughter, Quinn's my younger daughter, they both love uh, Hooked on a Feeling. Really? And I blame the Guardians of the Galaxy, but <laughs> for some reason it, it must have come up at a friend's house and 
my 20 month old just starts grooving. It's like <laughs> the best thing that ever happened. And it's the Hugashaka part. And it's yeah, like, yeah, it's my four year old's like, play it again, play it again, play it again. So that's the song that's on repeat right now. I actually got her, uh, my wife got me a record player oh, for awesome. Christmas. And uh, she bought me two two records to start my collection. And one of them is the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack. Oh, that, well, that's a great record. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's such a great collection of music. Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah, it's funny that that's the song. But anything to get me away from, you know, Baby Shark and Into the Unknown from Frozen. Yeah. So, uh. <laughs> uh, okay, favorite subject in school growing up? English. Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, I loved English. I had a really great uh, 11th grade English teacher, Mr. Bradley. He was just, he was an inspiring guy. He was, um, he let us do a lot of the heavy lifting, kind of what I've turned into my classroom. And the one thing I liked about it was we're going to read this book, but, and yeah, we'll have some guiding questions, right? Setting, things like that. But mostly it's our reaction to it. It's our interpretation of it. And he was the one that first made me in high school realize that we could interpret this book in the way we wanted to, but we weren't going to get away with just saying, oh, I think this. It had to be why. What's what's pushing you to think that way? And so that was it junior year. And then senior year, I decided I was going to college to study English, and I ended up going to private school to study English, which was maybe a mistake. I guess I could blame my school counselor for that. <laughs> but, hey, there's plenty of good public schools around here. Um, but it worked out for the best. So you were an English major in college? I was an English, in English education. I knew I wanted to be a teacher, and it was largely because of Mr. Bradley. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, okay, final question. If you could have dinner with anyone living or dead, who would it be and why? It'd be Tom Brady, hands down. Um, I'd like to invite Joe Rogan to come to dinner with us too, though, so maybe <laughs> the three of us. But uh, yeah, Tom Brady, I think uh, I have a real appreciation for sustained excellence, so maybe the answer should have been Bill Belichick. But um, I think we tend to turn on teams that are successful for a long time. I think we saw it a little bit with the Golden State Warriors in recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, but something about programs and stuff and, and those types of characters who have figured out a way to be at the highest level of whatever it is for this extended period of time. They've adjusted with the times, they've made adjustments with the way the game is changing, and yet they still are always kind of in the top five, eight teams that are going to be there, or programs, or whatever it might be, just sustained excellence. And I think Tom Brady's a really good example of that. And he seems to be, obviously, you know, what do we know, but he seems to be a pretty good person. Too. Yeah. Well, if if she's listening, Miss Patrika, I mean, you're probably her newest fan well there we go i bet you we, there's a lot of tom brady fans out there and even and she's your newest fan is what i'm <laughs> well, there you go. i have some buddies who are huge bills fans yeah and i got i get at least one of them to acknowledge that tom brady is the greatest well I, after his last super bowl yeah i don't think there's any question anymore part of me was like he could have walked away but at the same time if he still feels like hey i'm slinging it Why not? let's yeah. just keep doing it i'll keep watching <laughs> all right me too uh, I'm a big fan as well. Yeah. Patriots are my favorite team. My yeah. dad, my dad's from the Boston area, so yeah. Uh, I'm a Fairweather fan. I started with Brady. Yeah, I, I tend, I actually tend to, because I don't have any affiliation or love for any Florida teams, mm-hmm. just because my parents are both Northerners. Sure. My dad's from Massachusetts. My mom's from Indiana. So I didn't grow up being a fan of any of the the Is, Florida your, teams. Your father's a big Patriots fan. Yeah, and Red Sox. And Red Sox. Mm-hmm. Um, I, t- I tend to follow players more than teams. Like when Tom when Tom Brady retires, I don't know if I'll be a huge Patriots yeah, fan. I'm with you. Same feeling. I'm and I would, jump over and like the 49. My favorite my favorite player athlete of all time is Stephen Ash, uh, basketball. Oh yeah, yeah played yeah, for the yeah, Suns, yeah. and I was like a religious follower of the Suns for a few years when he played, and then he retired. He actually went to the Lakers for a short stint, but mm-hmm. when he left the league, I stopped watching basketball pretty much. But that he see he sustained excellence at a at yeah. a long time, even at an older age. He he figured out a way to find his niche. Yeah. All right. Jeremy Riggio, 
global right. perspectives teacher, North yeah. Fort Myers High School. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was Thanks. a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. All right. And thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you next time.